Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Douglas Skelton, a writer who has published 12 non-fiction books and 9 crime thrillers with number 10 due in August 2021. His first thriller, Blood City, was published in 2013, the first in a quartet set in Glasgow from 1980 onwards. And the last book in this series, Open Wounds, was long listed for the first McIlvanny Prize for Scottish Crime Book of the Year in 2016. And more recently, his novel Thunder Bay, a dark and atmospheric tale of secrets, lies and murder on a Scottish island, was also long listed for the same award in 2019. As well as being a writer, Douglas is also a performer and takes part in comedy shows with other crime writers. And he's also one quarter of Four Blokes in Search of a Plot, along with Gordon Brown, Mark Leggett and Neil Broadfoot. And this is a fun show in which they invite the audience to give them a murder weapon and a protagonist. And then they then take it in turns to create a crime story while also answering audience queries about the craft. And his one-man event, You the Jury, invites audiences to deliver verdicts on real-life but heavily disguised cases from around the world. In 2019, the format was extended into a court drama in conjunction with the Faculty of Advocates, Scottish Court Services and the James Hutton Institute, and presented within Stirling Sheriff Court, three silent houses during the Bloody Scotland Festival. Douglas, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hi Paul, thanks very much for having me. I sound great! (laughs) Well, listen, I was, I was actually going to say that that's only a, a potted, you know, because I, I only touch on, you know, some of the books that you've written. Yeah. I mentioned right at the very start, you'd written 12 non-fiction and nine fiction, obviously writing all the time. And What made you switch from non-fiction to fiction or do you still vary occasionally in what you're writing? No, I, I, I'm, I am devoted to fiction now. There are some police officers in Glasgow who said that I was writing fiction all along. I always wanted to write fiction even when I was doing the non-fiction I had this yen to do it and I always put a, a, a sheen of storytelling over the, the stories that I was that, that I was writing obviously the difference is that in non-fiction you follow the facts or as, or as as well as you can doesn't mean I got everything right but I followed the facts as uh, uh, you know as far as I could but putting this sort of uh, layer of storytelling on top to try and make it read like fiction as much as I could and eventually that's what actually turned me against writing the the true crime because I realised that I was turning real life tragedy into entertainment and in fact very early on in the true crime career and I started to go further back in history and started to do more historical stories because I was more comfortable with that and to be honest I found them I found them more interesting uh, I'm fascinated by tales of crime in the past. I just find it so, so much more interesting the, the way that the, the legal system was. And of course, you have the shadow of the noose hanging over anybody if, if you're writing about a murder, which gives it that additional frisson. But eventually, I'd, with my last nonfiction book, which was uh, uh, Glasgow's Black Heart, I realised that I think I'd told everything I really wanted to tell and I stopped and really didn't do any more for another four or five years. And that's when the fiction career kicked off. 
I suppose the, the experience, I'm guessing the experience of all the, the work and research you did onto the, the non-fiction books feeds into the, the crime thrillers because either things that you've found out or just even wee elements of your previous research, you can bring that into the various books that you have written. It did, it did. I was, I was also a, a reporter for a number of years uh, with a local newspaper in the, the West End of Glasgow and I became the de facto crime reporter just because I happened to be there one morning and, and the editor said, away you go around the police station, son. So I, I took that on. So what I learned from that, what I learned also as a, a precognition agent for a couple of Glasgow solicitors, and a precognition agent was somebody who went out for this list, the defence, uh, to interview possible witnesses in criminal trials, because at that time, the prosecution didn't need to, to hand everything over to the defence. I'm not even sure if they do it now. But what they did do was give them a list of witnesses that they may call in any particular case. So the defence had to send somebody out to interview those witnesses to find out what they knew. And the thing about that is that the witness you were talking to didn't need to tell you the truth. They were under no obligation to tell you the truth. They could, they could tell you anything. And there was, there was no comeback on it. So from what I learned doing that, because the, the solicitors that I worked with were particularly energetic in their defence. And so I was sent out to find defence witnesses. So it, it became investigative work in a lot of ways. So everything that I learned there and also while I was doing the, the book on the ice cream wars that I co-wrote with, with Lisa Brownlee. Everything that I learned from that filtered into certainly the, the four Davy McCall books that I started off with. The first one was Blood City, which, which you mentioned. Now, they are still crime books, they're still thrillers, essentially, but I like to think that there's a, there's a layer of reality there, and that was where I gleaned from doing the investigative work and also the ice cream wars work. As I mentioned as well in the introduction, the two of your books have been long listed for the, the McIlvanny Prize for Scottish Crime Book of the Year, which I suppose, I guess it must validate what you're doing as well, because, you know, when you look at, you know, some of the other novels over the last three or four years that have been nominated for that, then you're in pretty good company. Yeah, yeah, some, a lot of great novels are, are, are nominated. Of course, I've only been on the long lists, so, you know, not even a bridesmaid, let alone a bride. It's, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's like the, the scabby wains outside the church waiting for the scramble. But, <laughs> it's, but no, it's, it really is great to be on the long list. And, you know, the, the couple of times that it's happened has, has given me a great thrill. It's, it's a great boost to the ego as well. And it's nice to know that there are people out there who have appreciated what you've done so much, uh, you know, the readers on the awards list to score it highly enough to get onto the long list. I'm also thinking as well that, you know, for younger listeners, I'm not sure if I should explain what a scramble is because I'm sure, <laughs> I'm not even sure if these things exist anymore. <laughs> I don't know either. That, sorry, that's that's Mickey, my dog. He always makes a guest appearance uh, whenever I do anything like this. But uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, scramble is, we used to sit wait outside a church during a wedding and whenever the wedding party left, they would throw handfuls of coins and as Wayne's would scramble after it to grab a penny or, or if we were lucky, a threepence, which shows you how old I am. Well, I remember that my kids uh, were all in their 20s, early 30s now. They used to do that at the church across the road from us and they used to love it whenever they used to see people arriving for weddings and they thought they had quids in. There is that sort of link to childhood, which it's not quite a seamless link, but I, I'm, I'm taking it as, as such when I kind of take you back uh, <laughs> in terms of the podcast to 
your first book choice, and that is your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Shane by Jack Schaefer. That's right. Yeah. You'd think we'd rehearsed that, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, um, Shane, what can I say? I mean, when you asked me to do this, and I thought long and hard as to what these books were, because, you know, I thought, what did I read when I was younger? And, of course, there was Tom Sawyer and, and Tuckleberry Finn, which I loved, and the, the books of Jack London, White Fang and Call of the Wild. And I, I read all of them. No particular children's books, as it were. And I thought about, you know, Treasure Island. But Shane has stayed with me since then the whole idea i love westerns i just love westerns i still love westerns and the whole idea of shane has has actually influenced me because shane is all over the davy mccall books i always said that the the davy mccall books were basically westerns set in, in the streets of glasgow and this notion of the solitary figure with the the shadowy past is something that appeals to me and it has had such an effect on not just on me, but on all sorts of, of, of movies and books. It could be argued that practically every Clint Eastwood Western is based on Shane in some way, particularly Pale Rider, which is like an unofficial remake in many ways. But yeah, Shane, I just loved. I have not read it for many, many years. That I'm frightened to read it in case I don't like it. Sometimes it's best to leave these things alone. But yes, yeah, certainly Shane, it was just, it's a book that stayed with me. It's influenced me in so many ways. And I, I love the movie as well. What age would you have been when you did read it? I was trying to think that. I, th I must have been about nine, maybe 10. I read a lot of Westerns when I was a, a child. And some of the titles I read, Louis Lemur, I read J.T. Edson, uh, names that a lot of sort of younger people don't know now, but they were, they were big in their day. I remember a couple of titles that stayed with me now, and I wish I still had them, was Mesquite Johnny. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's a book that I read many, many times. And Seventh Cavalry by Jeff Jeffries, which was about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, and that was, a that was a children's book, right enough. That was the, the New English Children's Library or something, New English Library, I think it was. And you had all these classic books and other books that, that were part of this, this franchise, as we would call it now. Um, what are you saying about how you, you're reluctant to revisit it? Because I suppose like every book that you read, it depends what age you are and what time of your life, that you obviously will react it differently as an adult. And I, I suppose there is that. I cannot really understand that apprehension in case it, it takes some of the, the shine off it or the memories off it. Yeah, tastes change and we mature. Even my writing style, I think, has changed over the years that I've been writing books. But we do grow up. The danger is when you go back to these things is that you start to judge them on the way we are now. And we shouldn't do that. It's, it's same with TV shows and you know, certain films. If you're going to watch something that you loved as a child, you have to try and remember what it was like to see that as a child and not the way that we view things now. Star Trek, the original Star Trek, I think, is a prime example of that. If you watch the original Star Trek now, we can kind of scoff a lot of it, but you've got to remember what it was like when we first saw it. We'd never seen anything like that. It, it can be dangerous. You know, the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, and it's the same with books, TV, and movies. You mentioned in terms of the, the first four novels that you'd written and effectively looking at them like as if they're Western set, but in a modern context. Was that in your head when you first came to, to write Blood City, that in the back of your mind, that's, that's what you were looking for? Are you, were you aware of that influence? Yes, very much so. I really do love Westerns. So yes, it was there. 
the thing about the four books is that the fourth one, Open Wounds, was written first. And originally it was going to be a standalone, but somebody in the publishing industry said, well, you know, we like this, but we'd really like to see how all these characters came together. And so Blood City, I mean, even the title Blood City is suggestive of a Western. In fact, I think there is one called Welcome to Blood City with Jack Palance, which is a, a hybrid Western science fiction thing. So I, I went back and wrote Blood City, and that's why it goes from the year uh, 1980 up to the year 2000. So I knew as I was writing it how this four book saga was going to end. But yes, the, the Western influence is always there, particularly with Davy McCall. I mean, Davy McCall is is really your traditional tragic hero, except he's an anti-hero. He's a, he's a criminal. And again, that was a, a decision that I took after some thought when I started to write fiction. That, you know, what was I going to write? And the obvious thing is you write uh, some sort of police procedural. But at that time, Ian Rankin was doing it. Uh, you know, other people were doing it and doing it so well that I didn't think that I could add anything to that. So I went the other way and made the majority of my characters part of the underworld. But yes, the Western theme was very much there. There is even a showdown in not in the not in the main street, but in Duke Street uh, at the end of Blood City, and that is a major showdown. <laughs> and I, I, as I say, every time I wrote it, I knew that there was this Western influence coming in there. I was going to say that must have been great when you obviously, as you say, you write the fourth book first, or you write the one book, but obviously it's to that point where somebody says, "Yeah, we want to know the the backstory." And that gives you that opening to write what turned out to be three novels before you get back to the first one you wrote. It was a, it was a great piece of advice that somebody had. They obviously spotted it. I can't even remember who it was, to be honest. It might have been Bob McDevitt, actually, who's the, the showrunner, if you like, for I Write and Bloody Scotland. But it was a great piece of advice, and it did open up this entire, this whole myth-making idea that I was going for with with the, the David McCall books as well, uh, which is part of the Western influence. In the second book, there's a character who whistles Streets of Laredo in the streets. And it, and again, it's a theme that goes through that as, as this character whistling Streets of Laredo and you hear it you know, echoing through the streets and through the back courts. He's a villain. So again, that's the Western influence coming in as well. If I could take you on from uh, Shane and your, that favourite book from childhood, and it's on to favourite book from kind of teenage formative years and the book that you've chosen is The Temples of Gold by William Goldman. This was a book that I discovered. I decided uh, as a teenager that I was going to collect books. In other words, I just wanted some books. And my grandmother, Manana, as we all still call her, sent me this box of books. And in among these books was this, The Temples of Gold, and it was published in the 1950s. And William Goldman. Now, as soon as I saw the, the author, I knew who he was because he wrote the screenplay for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which if anybody ever asks me, what's your favourite film? That's the one that I say, because that's the one that comes into my head. I actually have a whole host of favourite movies, but that's the one that I always say. And I loved the, the script to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So once I saw that William Goldman had written this, I thought, oh, what's this? And I started to read it. And it's really, it's a rites of passage tale. It was the first book he ever had published. And you can tell it's, it's a younger man that's writing it. But the book itself, he was an absolutely terrific writer, not just a screenwriter, but his prose was marvellous. His dialogue was incredible. He also understood that you need to have humour. He never forgot to bring the funny, even in the most tragic situation. And so this, this tale of uh, a young man growing up 
kind of in a way I think mirrored his own upbringing but you know there's a lots of tragedy there's there's lots of of uh, drama going on you know he makes friends loses friends there's death there's there's love affairs I think it's an utterly incredible piece of work and it is a book that I have gone back to time and time again I've never been afraid to go back to read that because it's all there for me I still have that original copy the cover's falling off, um, the pages are, are falling apart. I, st- I still have it, but I also have a, a, a more recent copy as well. That's the one that I read when I go back to it. But William Goldman, an incredible author, an incredible series of books. And another one that I read, I must have been in my early 20s by that time, was Marathon Man. And that is, is a template for any kind of conspiracy, paranoid thriller that you want to go for just an, another incredible piece of work. But there's lesser known works that he, he's done, uh, in particular Control, Edged Weapons. These books are just, they are so good that it's impossible for me to overpraise them, in, in my opinion. You know what I liked when, uh, you know, obviously with this choice, I wasn't aware of the book and I kind of knew, you know, that vague familiarity with the name, but then when I, as you mentioned, he'd, he'd because I think he won Oscars for his screenplay for Butch Cassidy. He did, yes. And also for All the President's Men. All the President's Men, yeah. Marathon Man, which is, you know, I've, I've read that book. It's a great film as well. He wrote the screenplay for that. But what was really interesting, which kind of absolutely astounded me, was for The Temples of Gold, apparently he wrote it over a period of about three weeks, which mm. is just extraordinary. And especially if you're saying, you know, it's actually, you know, it's a, a really great book. It's his first novel, but to have written it in that really concise period of time, I suppose, hints at his ability as a writer. He was an astonishing writer. And The Temples of Gold, uh, dear listener, is a reference to Gunga Din, I think the movie version, which was a favourite of William Goldman's. And it's it's a theme of his as well. It's it's mentioned in other, other of his works too. I found this great quote actually about from William Goldman, which I really liked, uh, about The Temples of Gold. And he said, The Temple of Gold, Temples of Gold, like most of my books, got crucified in hardcover and was a very, very successful book in paperback. Most of the books that I've written had their success in paperback, which is, which is quite interesting that maybe critically they maybe weren't as well received, but obviously commercially that they yeah. were. I can see that because it has a pulpy feel to it, if you like. I mean, certainly in the 1950s, they would be looking for something that, that is more literary. Uh, and when you read the, the Temples of Gold, he just tells a damn good story. And the dialogue is very funny and very natural in a lot of ways. But it does have this pulpy feel, this a, a soapy feel, I think we would call it now. But he pulls it off. And he, there's a later book that acts as a kind of companion piece to the Temples of Gold, but only in that it's a, a very sprawling epic story about a, you know, a number of characters, boys and girls together, it's called. Now, the first time I read that, I loved it. The second time, not so much, because I think it was there was just too much and it was just too big and he was going too much for the Harold Robbins idea. But there's still a lot of good stuff in Boys and Girls together. Obviously, he was a novelist, but obviously a screenwriter as well. I mentioned just briefly in the introduction that as well as being a writer, you're a performer and take part in comedy shows. In terms of the detail of that, you've written three carry-on sleuthing plays. You yeah. appear in them along with various other crime <laughs> writers and, and various guests. And, and, you know, you do a lot of performance stuff as well, all, all of which sounds really brilliant. Do you, I was curious, when you're actually writing your novels, is there a kind of part of you, is there a cinematic element of how you're envisaging it? Or obviously you're hoping at some point maybe some of them 
might get turned into film or TV series. Oh, yeah, I would love that. So any producers who are listening, get in touch. <laughs> yes, uh, very much. I, I am very much influenced by movies and a lot of what I write, I am visualising as, as it would appear on screen, um, whether it's describing you know, the scene or the action or how it would all cut together, very much so that uh, it is in, in, in my mind that someday it would be nice to have something actually made but it's, in fact, one of my books, The Janus Run, which is my, unfortunately, my least successful book, I describe it as an action movie in prose. And the whole idea of that book was to take everything that I loved about the 70s and 80s uh, conspiracy chase thrillers and put them onto a page. So although the book was set in present day New York, the whole style of it, the view of New York was a cinematic New York and not necessarily the reality. And the way that people spoke, some of the characters was very much from the 1970s. And that could explain probably why it didn't work because I think you know people didn't realise quite rightly what I was trying to do. I'm happy with it because I did what I set out to do, but there are readers out there who were unhappy with it because they just, they, they didn't know that that's what I was trying to do. So yes, certainly the movies play a big, uh, a big part in, in the influences. Obviously, maybe the, the past years put restrictions in terms of the kind of performance side of things. But how much do you enjoy that? Actually, obviously working alongside fellow writers, but then obviously interacting with the audience. Well, you know the fellow writers, you know they're a bit of a bother. You know, you have to deal <laughs> with all these egos. You know, they're all bits of diva. I mean, that Carol Ramsey, what a diva she is. Michael J. Malone, Denzel Myrick, my goodness, never go on a stage with Denzel Myrick. Uh, no, I'm kidding. They're all actually very good. Yeah, I, I love it. When I was younger, I wanted to be an actor. And I, I attended the junior course at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, darling. And I, I got a small part with a, with a friend on Sutherland's Law, which was a, a BBC drama back in the 70s, I think it was. Once I saw myself in that, I realised that I was not going to be an actor. So I started stringing words together in some semblance of order from then on. And I'd been writing before that as well, but that's when I realised, no, maybe, I, maybe I, I've got a great face for behind the camera. I did that, and then I, I was involved in hospital radio, and I wrote and appeared in comedy shows in that, and I you know, did concerts and things. But then for a long time, I didn't do anything, and I, I lost the performing mojo. became very, very self-conscious for many, many years, until I started writing fiction and then realised that part of being a writer now is having to get up in front of people and actually talk and, in my view, be entertaining. So from that, I drifted very, very quickly into being more of a comedy term in, in a lot of ways. And, and luckily, I hit a sort of gang mob of crime writers who had a similar way of dealing with it. So you had uh, Carol Ramsey, who I've mentioned, Michael J. Malone, Teresa Talbot, Denzel Myrick, who all believe in entertaining their audience as, as much as they can. So the plays were, were born, Carry On Sleuthing was born out of a request by the Carnegie Library in Air to put something together for their Reader's Night. And the very first one was uh, presented with library staff, plus Michael J. Malone and myself. But it's grown since then, and it's changed since then. And we've taken it on the road, a world tour of various parts of Scotland to present to audience. And it's, you know, it goes down well. 
because I think audiences understand that we're just having a bit of fun. This is absolutely nothing serious. The jokes are bad. The performances are even worse, if you ask me. Not Caro's, of course, because Caro, you know, knows how to kill you with somebody else's little finger. But it is great fun. It's the same with with Four Blokes. Uh, I mean, I said about a world tour with Caro and Sleuthing. It has gone international. We'd, we appeared in Spain earlier this year before lockdown, which was incredible. And it's all great fun. It really is great fun. One of the things that always strikes me, you know, writing's often a, a solitary profession and a solitary activity, but particularly it seems to me like Scottish, there seems to be like a kind of Scottish crime writing community and a camaraderie amongst writers that they share in the success, they share in the joy of others. And it's really kind of helpful and supportive, which I think at times must be encouraging for people if you're kind of slogging away in front of your own laptop in your own room. I, I've had great encouragement, not only from the, you know, my friends, the ones that I've mentioned, but also Alex Gray and Lynn Anderson and Ian Rankin has been absolutely brilliant as well. Craig Robertson, all, all these people have, have been absolutely terrific. Uh, but yeah, there are, but, you know, you know behind their back, we're going, how, how dare they be more successful than I am? You know, how did they get a listing and I didn't? It's, yeah, that is a very, very welcoming community. And what else can I say? That they really have, they do support people. They really do support people. Gordon Brown is, is, is another one. Gordon actually takes it a step further in that he he helps the debut authors during the Bloody Scotland Festival. So, and he works with them for a long time ahead of it to try and help them get their presentation correct because they go on before perhaps, you know, Ian Rankin's session or Val McDermott's session and they've got to read a section from their book. And that must be very daunting. I couldn't do it. I'd hate to do that. But Gordon works with them and helps bring them along. Um, so he, he's he's actually going the extra mile. And I'm guessing, I know you were, you were downplaying your uh, limited acting abilities, but I'm guessing if any of your books do get turned into films that you'll uh, be putting in a request for a wee cameo appearance in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like Alfred Hitchcock. You know, preferably just sort of like a shadow. You know, we don't want to horrify the, the viewer. Well, you're listening to Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Douglas Skelton. And Douglas, we're on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Mystic River by Dennis Lehane. Yeah. When you know you asked me to do this, as I said, I, I to think long and hard, because there's so many books, and I had all these titles that came into my head. In fact, for the teenage one, the first thing I thought of was actually the books of Ed McBain, but how do I select one book out of, I don't know how many there were, 60-odd, 70-odd books? So Temples of Gold, I think, had more of an influence in a lot of ways on me. And Mystic River is just, for me, the perfect crime book. And I can't really explain why. It's just something that works. Now, Dennis Lehane is, a, is an incredible writer. I, I love his work anyway. And this was not the first of his books that I read. I think that I read the Kelsey and Gennaro series before I got to Mystic River. But it's just, it's more than a crime book. I I will defy anybody. And I, I get very annoyed when the film came out because a film critic said, and we have to remember this is based on a pulp fiction. And I don't think Mystic River is pulp fiction. The depth of characterization, the intricacies of the plot, the darkness of the plot, 
and the whole way it plays out is it's, it's an absolute tragedy. This book, the, the story that this book tells, but he tells it so well, and again doesn't forget to bring some humour, which I think is very very important. And it, it is a book that I would recommend and have recommended to anybody who wants to read a crime novel. And in fact, the film itself, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, is one that I say is one of the most perfect adaptations of a book I've ever seen. Everything you need from the book to be in the film is in the film. And if you haven't seen that, I recommend that as well. You know, it's funny when I saw that you'd chosen this book and in the category of a book you couldn't read again, this would be a candidate for me. And the reason why is, and I explained this, I was remember talking to Jane Hamilton, the crime reporter on another previous podcast, and she's a big fan of Dennis Lehane books. And I said, the reason I couldn't read this book again, I have never been so chilled. See the opening section of Mystic River? Yes. I got to the, the end of that first section and I was terrified. I was scared. It was actually chilling, completely unnerving. And and very few books have that effect that I'm not sure if I'd want to experience it again. I mean, I read the whole novel and I, I agree with what you're saying earlier on. It's it's more than just a, a crime book. And the way he sets that opening section actually chilled me. And I don't know as well at the time, I think my son was maybe roughly the same age as, as the protagonist as well, which I think maybe had an impact. But that has stayed with me to the point that, you know, even when, when I saw you just made the choice, I'm not sure if I could read that first section again, because I don't know if I'd want to have that experience, which you know, was so visceral for me. Oh, I understand that. I understand. It's a very, very dark story, and he, he does it so very, very well. And yes, that opening sequence is incredibly chilling. Uh, so I can understand that you wouldn't want to to go back to it, but it's it's so well done. It is so well done. What I liked about it, in terms of, I thought it was it was chilling, but it was subtle because it ended up. It was the way he described it was he. It's what he didn't tell you that ended up filling your mind because you. He was then taking you so far and letting you imagine what yes. had happened, and that I think was a real skill, but also that, I think that's what made it worse because I think sometimes if, if he just kind of explained everything that maybe happened, it would have, you know, maybe diluted it a bit, but just yes. leaving you to that kind of flight of fancy or fantasy or horror, Aye. I think that, that made it more impactful. I think if he'd taken that extra step, it would have become, it wouldn't have worked. It would have become unsavoury. And as I know, it's a cliche that our imaginations are absolutely incredible and we are totally, uh, we, we, we all have the ability to even unconsciously fill in details. So it's not up to, the author doesn't need to put certain things in, they just need to lead the, the reader that way and the reader will do the rest or the imagination will do the rest. Filmically, and sorry to keep going back to films, but as, as I say, I really am influenced, but the, the original version of Halloween is another example, example of that. And that's a visual example. And that so many people seem to think that that is a very, very gory film. And it's actually not. There is very, very little blood in Halloween, but the imagination has put it there. We think, oh God, there's a lot of blood there. And that's the beauty of, of Halloween. And there is no blood. It is just pure suspense because Carpenter left it to the, the viewer to fill that in. And Dennis Lehane did exactly the same in, in his way with the opening to Mystic River. And the ending is probably one of the most tragic endings I have ever read <laughs> you know if you do not weep at you know Mystic River then you're, you're dead <laughs> um, in terms of 
do you read a lot of crime books? Because obviously yes. that's yes. a genre that you're, you're very much immersed in. Is that, do you think that's important then as a, as a crime writer to kind of know what everybody else is writing, just, just in terms of getting a flavour of what, what, what's in that genre? Yeah, yeah. You have to see what other people are doing. And, you know, there is, I, I think Samuel Johnson and Stephen King both said along the lines of, you know, if you want to write, read and I think you, you should read. Now, it happens to be crime, but I'll, I'll, I'll read other things as well. I'll read nonfiction. And because I do some chairing of, of events, I'll, I'll get other kind of books that I might not normally have read to do there. But yes, it is important. Crime is predominantly what I read now. It's fallen off a little bit of late because I've been doing other things. Crime and movie, books about movies, are, are the two things that I do. In fact, I'm rereading old copies of Empire at the moment. Uh, now and again, just picking them off my shelf and flicking through them. It's interesting, Scotland does have this, you know, reputation of being a, a very vibrant scene for, for crime writers. And, you know, even just the news that quite recently that uh, Ian Rankin is going to, he's going to complete the, the William McIlvany's Unfinished. Yeah, the Unfinished Lead Law. Yeah. Which I think is just so exciting because uh, the, the, the three Lead Law books are just incredible. But I, I wonder, I mean, I, I presume you've been asked this before, why... Why it is that Scotland seems to have this this real vibrancy in terms of really really good and varied crime writers? I do, and I actually don't have an answer. I have no idea. Maybe it's something in our psyche. Maybe it's you know those of us who have got any Celtic blood drawn to the darkness could be something like that. Personally, I think there's far too many of us, and I, I am you know drawing up a list uh, of. <laughs> Of, of crime writers who, you know, better keep looking over their shoulder. Uh, so and that that's, you know, the, the better ones in particular. But I, I don't know. In fact, there's a story there. I, I interviewed, I'm going to name drop here, uh, Val McDermott and Peter May for Bloody Scotland one year. And you go into the green room at these festivals ahead of time and you chat away in there. And between us, we came up with a game show uh, out of a reality show for TV in which 50 crime writers were put on a Scottish island and had to come up week by week of uh, varied and interesting ways to kill each other. And the one the one who was left got, you know, a lifetime book deal with a major publisher. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that, I think that show's got legs. Do you, do you know the thing is, it's, I, mean, I don't know if you remember the the, the old Alan, the Alan Partridge shows where he used to have the wee dictaphone and he would always come up with these ideas for ludicrous shows, most of which have subsequently been made since the advent of digital TV. So see in about two years' time, you'll turn on your TV, somebody's got that idea, you should have copyrighted it. Yes, I should have. <laughs> It'll be that Val McDermott, she'll be away with it. She'll have a production company going in a minute. We go from a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you could read again. And when we were corresponding before this, you had, had said that you hadn't hated anything enough to name one. And I was wondering, partly, and I've quite a few writers that I've spoken to, because it's such a subjective thing, but you know how much effort's involved in, in writing a book, yeah, yeah, that you don't want to then single one out. But also, sometimes people as readers, if they're not enjoying a book, they just put it down. So it doesn't leave that lasting negative effect because they then go on to something else that they'd rather read. I do that. If I'm, if I'm really not enjoying something and I, I know I'm not enjoying it because I'm not drawing back, I'm not looking forward to, you know, getting into bed or getting half an hour to sit down and read it. If I'm really not enjoying it, I don't continue with it. Life's too short to force yourself to finish something. And it's the same with TV shows when people say to me, yes, but stick with it. It really kicks off in season two. And well, no, I'm not sitting wading through season one to get to season two where it kicks off. So... 
I don't do that and there isn't really anything and I, again I thought about it and not I could not think of a book that I would say oh I despised that book it would be easy to pick out there are easy targets you know that people will have a go at Dan Brown or Jeffrey Archer or whatever and that's unfair I've read a couple of Jeffrey Archers in the early days and thoroughly enjoyed them I've read The Da Vinci Code. Did I think it was great? No. Did I finish it? Yes. So that showed you that I that I I was enjoying it. And I was thinking when you said about that, that you would pick something like Mystic River. So I was trying to think, was there anything that, that disturbed me enough or scared me enough? And really, no, there's not been anything. Even The Exorcist that I read as a teenager, which was you know a very effective piece of work then, it's not one that I would say, oh, you, you know, I wouldn't read that again. I wouldn't, as Joey Tribbiani did in Friends, put you know the Shining into the fridge. So you know there was there was really nothing that I, I would do that I, I would I would name. Yeah, it's just it's interesting me you were saying you know about TV series in particular, and I've I've had that conversation as well with people where they they ask you to stick with it, and I always mm-hmm. think you know certainly with TV series if you have to if, if season one doesn't hook you then it's not doing its job, and to an extent with a novel. I, I don't know whether it's the, the first chapter, the first 50 pages. Generally, I, I get up to the first 100 pages. And then if it's still not engaging me, then I'll yeah. put it down and maybe come back to it. But you need to you need to grip people from the start because they've invested a bit of time in your work. And you can't just leave it up to the hope that somehow halfway through it will kick in and they'll go, oh, this is actually quite good. Most people will give up before then. Yes, I, th- I think they will. I think they will. So it's, and yet you, you have to be aware of that. There's so much competition out there. And so much good stuff as well that you have to be aware that you're jostling and, you know, scratching and clawing and sticking the elbows out and trying to get position. So you have to keep the reader reading. One thing I was just going to ask on that is that I, I interviewed a, another writer, an Irish writer called Aidan McQuaid, who's written his first crime novel and it was set in 1920 in Ireland. And the first sentence was, the tree was in the river, the boy was in the tree. And I said to him, that's a great first line. And I wonder, you know, particularly when you're, when you're writing your books, do you, do you pay particular attention to that grip? You know, the first sentence, the first paragraph, the first chapter is a way of, you know, hooking the reader. Eventually, not at first, quite often. If something occurs to me right away, then yes. But eventually I, I will go back and say, right, how do I, how do I hook the, the reader here? Because that is, that is what writing is. You, you know, you get a draft down, then go back and fix and change and cut and paste and chop and change and there have been times when I've gone back and looked at the opening and said no I really need I really need a good a good line here I I, I thought I had a good line for the the blood is still my publishers will hate me telling you this but I thought I had a good line for the blood is still which came out in March there and when I, it was cut <laughs> so the publishers disagreed with me which is their right but I'll never forgive them <laughs> um, can you not bring it out again with the director's cut the, the, the author's cut the yeah. author's cut <laughs> <laughs> and with the, the one that's coming out next year I think I had three or four different openings to that before I, I decided on, on the one that I went with so yes you do have to, to hone it a bit and sometimes they just come into your mind but other times they don't and some authors, that's how they start. It's an opening line that's is, is what comes into their head and then they build the rest of the story based on that opening line. Because my favourite, you know, mentioning, obviously, William McIlvanny, it's often a phrase that he's described as the, the godfather of Tartan Noir. And the, the first line in the, the papers of Tony Beach, it was Glasgow yeah. on a Friday night, the city of the stair. That, when, I, when I read that, that just blew me away. 
my mind's gone blank, but the, the man who wrote uh, Get Carter, the, the original book of Get Carter, and the opening line in that was The Rain Rained, which is very, it's one of those very simple lines, but it works when yeah. you think about it. That's terrible for getting his name. That's shocking. Do you know what happened is that in about half an hour, you're, uh, once yep. we've finished the podcast, your dog will start barking and you'll go, ah, that's his name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if I can take you on to your last book choice, um, you've given me a couple of book choices in this and they're either the last book you've read or the book you're currently reading. And the first of those is Hide by Craig Russell. And yep. when I kind of started to Google it, it really excited me. It sounds amazing. It is, and it is amazing. And Craig is Craig is an incredible, an incredible writer, and a thoroughly decent cove as well. Now, Hyde H Y D E is not out until next year. This was an advance copy that I was very kindly sent. The idea is that it's taking Edward Hyde of Robert Louis Stevenson's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and essentially telling the real story, in which he's not a villain at all. In fact, he's a police officer with some issues. He's following up a fairly complex tale in Victorian Edinburgh. And it can be viewed as a companion piece in a way to Craig's last book, which was The Devil the Devil Aspect, which was a kind of gothic crime, mystery, horror, psychological drama in one fantastic book set in a castle in, uh, in Germany just before the war. So this one is... It's kind of in similar vein in a way in that there's a gothic feel to it. And it's Craig is, is such a, an incredible writer. And if nobody has read these books, again, I would recommend them to you. His, his Jan Fabel books, particularly The Ghosts of Altona, uh, which won the, the Scottish Crime Book of the Year when it came out, is such an immersive piece of fiction and so well written. I, again, I can't praise it enough. So watch out for Hyde. I can't. I don't know when it's coming out. I think it's spring, certainly early in the year. The other book uh, you've chosen is actually a novella, um, yeah. and it's called A Large Measure of Snow by Denzel Merrick, who you, you'd mentioned earlier on. Yeah, yeah. Denzel, uh, <laughs> what can I say about Denzel that can be repeated in polite company? Now, Denzel <laughs> is, is a very industrious and prolific author his daily series the kinlock series is probably one of the success stories and in fact not probably is one of the success stories of scottish crime writing i mean i think uh, at the last count there was over over three million copies i think sold worldwide of the the daily series and what he does is he, he mixes sort of kuthi humor with crime but a large measure of snow, the novella, is not crime. It's a very, very funny book. Yes, it's set in Kinloch, his fictional town uh, on Kintyre, based very much on Campbellton, where he was brought up. But yes, it is set there, so it's part of the Kinloch universe, if, if you like to call it that. But this is an incredibly funny piece of work about a fishing boat heading through a snowstorm in order to try and get some vital supplies to bring back to Kintyre and the, the, the wacky things that, that go on. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of, of reading the Parahandy Tales when I was a boy, the Neil Monroe, with the addition of a, a giant lobster and an omniscient seagull as well. But you have to read it to get it. And his, his dialogue is just so perfect. It's the same with the daily books. I, I thoroughly recommend, you know, A Large Measure of Snow. And if, if you haven't read the daily books, go for them as well. Because what I quite like as well, um, you know, you touched on it slightly with one of your novels, was it the, the Janice run? 
yeah. of just and, and obviously Denzel has maybe written more crime books and this is something completely different and obviously your book took you to New York it was something different and I like that when writers kind of take themselves out their, their comfort zone and challenge themselves and, and do something different I like to think that with each new book or each new series, I set myself challenges. So when I'd done the David McCall books, now that was something that I, I kind of knew a lot about because of the work that I'd done in the past. I thought, right, what can I do next? David McCall books were fairly dark. There was, there was a lot of humour in them, but they were still fairly dark. They were realistic. I thought, well, I want to change direction here. So I invented a cat. I had two rules when I started writing fiction. One was that I would never have a character with a strange name. So my next book, the protagonist, was called Dominic Quest with an E at the end. And the second rule was that I would never write a serial killer book. So the second book in the Dominic Quest series was a serial killer book. So there we are, rules are meant to be broken. So the idea with the Dominic Quest books, again, it goes back to my love of movies, in that he, he is a big movie fan. He loves Westerns as well. And he filters everything that happens to him through his love of movies and popular culture. But he was a kind of private eye in Glasgow. He's, he's not really a private eye. He says he was an odd job man. And he gets himself involved in all, all sorts of murky goings on. But he, he wisecracks his way through them. And again, this was just like a, an antidote to Davy McCall. Because Davy McCall hardly said anything. He was quite a taciturn person. Uh, in fact, it was very hard to write because everything was internalised with Dave McCall. With Dominic Quest, everything's out there. If it comes into his head, he says it and it gets him into all sorts of trouble. So that was the challenge there was, can I tell a story there that, that people will want to read that will still be a thriller, but will make them laugh, that might move them in places, will still surprise them, but also that I could take the gloves off. So if I wanted to have a shootout in the middle of Alexandra Park in the East End, which is not something with bodies dropping everywhere, not something I would do in the Davy McCall books because they were based in reality. They were very much rooted in the real world, but I could damn well do them with the Dominic Quest book. And indeed I did. And when I started writing it, I had no idea of a story. I just was going to use Raymond Chandler's uh, rule that if you ever feel your plot is slowing down, have two guys kick the door in with guns in their hand. So that is exactly what I did, literally, in one instance in the Dominic Quest books. And I'd written about 40,000 words or so, and I had to stop. And I was throwing all these set pieces and shootouts, chases, characters coming in and out, some, you know, all looking for this young girl who Dominic Quest had found. And I had to stop and say, right, I need to actually think of a story here. I've got all of these different set pieces here, and I need to think of a story. So I had to go away from it and work out what it was all about. That meant I could finish the draft and then go back and retrofit what I'd already written to fit the storyline that I'd come up with. So that was that. So that was the challenge there. So I did two of them. The next challenge was the Janus run. Can I tell this story while staying true to what I wanted to do and also set it in somewhere that I don't live? Uh, so it was it was New York. And then after that, the next challenge was the Rebecca Connolly books. And that was, can I write as a 20-something female? Because people can't see me, but I am not actually a 20-something female. So can I do that? And also calm myself down and not have chases and guns going and doors getting kicked in. Perhaps be a bit more lyrical, perhaps be a bit more thoughtful. And that was what was behind the, the Rebecca Connolly books. So yes, I think it is important that we challenge ourselves all the time because I, I'd hate to get into a rut. And I can feel it quite often that I'm getting into some sort of rut 
uh, with it. And I don't want to keep doing the same thing again. And there are a lot of authors that I know who, who do that as well. They don't want to repeat what they did last time or the book before or the book before. So they, they do different things. Even in a series, they will do different things within it. I'm working on something now that may well never see the light of day. But again, it's another change. It's a change of style. It's a change of pace. It's a change of location. That's all I want to say about it because it might never see daylight. In terms of your next novel, I mentioned right at the very start, that mm-hmm. is coming out next August. Are you able to tell us uh, the title of that and, and what that's about? It's called a, a Rattle of Bones and it begins in 18th century Scotland and then comes up to date because it's a Rebecca Connolly book. So the first chapter is 18th century Scotland and it entails a murder that happened uh, 10 years before, 10 years ago, that it may well have been a miscarriage of justice. And Rebecca, Rebecca Connolly is involved in trying to get that story out there. But it, it becomes very, very complicated uh, as it goes on. In fact, I'm not even sure what it's about. No, I'm not. <laughs> Um, it's it's uh, again. I'm I'm proud of it, but it should you know it'll be out in August. And before we we started recording, we were just you know obviously discussing. Hopefully next year, twenty twenty one, you know things will get back to a kind of normality in terms of you know being able to have book launches and book events. And you know that obviously helps you as, as an author where you are you know bringing out a book because you you want to go and and talk about it and let the audience know what it's about and and interact with them. Uh, and, and I enjoy it as well. It's not just a matter of, of marketing, but I do enjoy it. It's great to meet readers. It can be scary, especially if they don't like your book, but it, it's, it is great to meet readers. And yeah, I, I, I hope that there will be some sort of, I heard this on CNN the other morning, new normal-ish, because I don't think we will be back to normal for quite some time, but there might be something that we can do hopefully, whether it's it's digitally or in person or a hybrid of both somehow. But let's just hope that, that we do get back to some sort of normal behaviour because it would be good to get the festivals back up and running. And I think that the, all the festivals, there's a lot of festivals in Scotland and each one of them, big or small, is important. And, you know, I really believe readers uh, should support them, support libraries, support bookshops, you know, buy from bookshops, um, less online from, from whoever. And let's hope next year that we all have a better time of it than we've had this year. Absolutely. And we'll keep our fingers crossed for when A Rattle of Bones comes out next August. Uh, Douglas, sadly, we've come to the end of the podcast. I have to say I've I've really enjoyed uh, the book chat today uh, with you getting all your favourite books and and the fact that you don't have one that is not a (laughs) favourite. No, I don't. I don't. Um, but listen, thanks very much for, for being on the Read nope, All About It thanks podcast. for having me. It was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.